Today is part two in this really big block of text that we got into last week. If your Bible is open, hopefully it's to Romans chapter 7. This is verses uh, 7 through 25. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. If I would have not known what it is to sin, to covet in particular, if the law had not said, you shall not covet, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. In other words, uh, the, the law shows me I'm condemned. Now that's, if you want it in a sentence, that's what those verses are telling us. For sin, verse 11, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Just refortifying the point. But the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. The thing you have to understand about sin, the thing you have to understand about evil is that it's a, it's a parasite on good. Anything that's evil takes something that's good and corrupts it. And so Paul is saying, the law is not bad because it shows me my condemnation. The law is good. It comes from God. It's sin that's bad. And that sin even takes what's good and corrupts it. And that's the nature of sin. Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law. In other words, this is the reality that's set. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is God's Word. Now, our two weeks in this big chunk of text, which is biographical, Paul's not talking about somebody who hasn't yet met Christ and this is their experience, although it is the experience of someone who's not yet met Christ, but it's also the experience of people who have met Christ. And so we've looked at this in a part one, today is part two, the struggle is real. And just to kind of funnel this, to start wide and then move down particularly, to start wide, good and evil conflict within us all. It's real, honest, human experience tells us this. And the reason good and evil conflict in us is not because we're just as good as we are evil or that we're, you know, half good and half evil and it depends on the situation. No. The reality is we are more evil than we know 
such that trying to overcome myself, my tendency to do badly, or in Scripture's estimation, even doing the right I know to do and not doing it is doing badly. So even if I'm passive, not just active, uh, if I try to overcome myself by doing good, by being right, even according to something like God's law, which is, a, which is an ultimate expression of good, this will not fix my evil. If I turn to morality to fix myself, what I will find is that sin will capitalize on this because that's sin's nature. To simply apply even biblical morality to my heart as a self-improvement project actually has a greenhouse effect. Remember what he said last week, or two weeks ago, we looked at verse 5, chapter 7, verse 5, while we're living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. It's the greenhouse effect of the law. I, I, and he talks about it in this passage. I, I want to do what's right, but how come it is every time I want to do what's right, I always feel this pull at some point in that to what's not right, to its opposite. Now, this troubles us when we read this or hear this because it feels defeating. People hear preaching from this passage a lot of times and they feel defeated. It's like you're, you're telling me even when I want to do right, I'm snake bit. But it's actually meant to take us to a greater victory, a greater victory than we can summon up uh, ourselves. And that's what verse 25 zeroes us in on. But just again, to start wide and then move down more particularly to us, and even as we start wide, we're still talking about us, but there, there's a classic story that brings the basic human struggle home. And this story actually quotes Romans 7 when you read the, the book version. It's not going to come out in the movie version that you may have seen of this story, but the story is Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Years ago, I heard Tim Keller preach this passage some 20 years ago sermon, and um, he used this story to illustrate the truth of this passage. And, it, and it's, I don't know a better illustration. Um, I actually just finished last night watching a ball game. I'll turn on football and I'll have a book and, and uh, Alabama football, I'm sorry, is boring. They just steamroll everybody and it's just boring. And so I'm reading stuff and watching the score go up. Vanderbilt football is more exciting because we never know what's going to happen when we get to the end. So I was watching Vandy as well. But I was reading the end of this. I, I picked up this little Robert Louis Stevenson book. He lived in the 19th century, and this, this little book was called Travels with a Donkey in the Savannah. And it was about his uh, month spent in the French uh, mountains with this uh, stubborn little donkey uh, named Modestine. And all the experiences he had meeting these people, I got a lot out of it. I thought it was fun. But Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is the story we want to focus on, not his travels with a donkey in the French mountains. And Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, as Robert Louis Stevenson wrote the story, these are not, actually, these are not two people. This is actually one and the same person. It's the person of Dr. Jekyll. And the good doctor, as the story goes, he, he wearied of himself, that is, he wanted to be good, but he recognized he had these poor traits. He, he had baser drives. He had flaws. He had faults. Basically, he tired of his sin. 
and he decided that he would create a potion, and the potion would separate his bad self off from his good self. And so his good self didn't have to, do, you know, he could, he could take the potion, and, and the bad self would just kind of do his thing and leave the good self alone. But Mr. Hyde, Mr. Hyde, Edward Hyde, is the personification of Dr. Jekyll's bad self. Mr. Hyde turned out to be more evil than Dr. Eckle, Dr. Jekyll ever dreamed himself capable of being. Mr. Hyde is completely self-absorbed. He's uh, got no redeeming characteristics. He's more evil than Dr. Jekyll ever considered himself being. And Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, Jekyll narrates his own story, and Stevenson drops Romans 7:14 into the description of Edward Hyde. That is, at the very end of, of, of verse 14, sold under sin. Mr. Hyde is in utter slavery to sin. Now, because Dr. Jekyll is a good man, he realizes there comes a point in the story where he's got to rein this in. He can no longer allow Mr. Hyde to brutalize people. Mr. Hyde's been murdering people. And so what Dr. Jekyll decides to do is he's going to control Mr. Hyde by being his best Dr. Jekyll self. And so Dr. Jekyll stops taking the potion, and he throws himself into good deeds for humanity. And one day he's sitting in a park, and he's quite pleased with himself. He's thinking about all the good things that he has done as Dr. Jekyll, and he, he begins to compare himself. He looks around the park, and, and he begins to estimate that, that surely he is uh, one of humanity's uh, best specimens. And suddenly he feels nauseous. And to his horror, he looks down, and he's Mr. Hyde without taking the potion. What's the moral of the story? It's just when he thought he'd gotten on top of Mr. Hyde by being the best Dr. Jekyll he could be that he discovered his pride and his self-righteousness was Mr. Hyde territory also. It's a frightening story. And it's meant to be because it's a window into real human nature. And so is Romans 7. Now, the story I was told from Romans 7 and maybe you've heard it too as it's made the rounds in churches for years and years. The story, the way I heard it, was the old Indian chief, okay? Native American, gets converted to Christ, and he's, he's later trying to articulate the struggle that he finds within himself as a redeemed man, and yet there's this struggle, and he compares it to two dogs fighting within him. Have you ever heard this? It's pretty common. It makes the rounds. And he says, the way I heard it was that uh, there's this uh, white dog representing uh, good and a black dog representing evil, and they fight inside him. And whichever one wins is the one he feeds the most. And that analogy, it sounds right because the description seems accurate enough. It does feel like there is this dog fight within us at times. But the prescription is inadequate because not only can it cause us to think of ourselves as, you know, half good and, and half evil, but also because it gives us a self-salvation narrative. It causes us to think we can out-jekyll our hide. 
Just locate the better angels in your nature and go with them. Just feed the white dog. How do we change? Better consideration is how do we conform to Jesus? Because that's what God the Holy Spirit is, is doing in us, is conforming us to Christ. How do we change? Paul is not saying, in Romans 7, he's not saying, find your better angels and just get there. Just do it. Just stop doing the stuff you're not supposed to do and start doing the stuff you are. In our frustration with ourselves and each other, we go there. Just, just stop it, you know. Have you ever been an exasperated parent? I've been an exasperated parent. Just, just stop it, you know. Just, yeah and it doesn't work, or you look in the rearview mirror and they're still doing this, it's just quiet now, you know. <laughs> no longer talking about it. Paul is not saying in Romans 7, find your better angels. Locate the white dog and, and feed that. What he's saying is, even when I find the desire to do what's right, I also find the desire for evil close by, and that means I am my own worst enemy. Even the desire for good can be full of pride and self-righteousness. Verse 21, I find it to be a law. In other words, I find this to be a set reality in human nature, verse 21, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Paul is telling us in this passage about human nature. He's telling us about our nature and why we need redemption, why we need Jesus to not just save us, but to sanctify us, to make us more like himself, which is the process of a lifetime of salvation. I meet him, and then he goes to work in me, making me more like him. But Paul says in Romans 7, there's a tension in this, there's a struggle in this. This word sanctify, sanctification, we saw it in chapter 6. If you want to just flip back for just a second, chapter 6, verse 19. The end of verse 19 in chapter 6 where he says, present yourselves as slaves to righteousness. That is, we talked about that, that the, the slavery image is, is troubling to us, but it's really about owning his ownership of us. Chapter 6, verse 19, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to, here's the high-dollar word, sanctification. Growth in Christ, maturing in Christ, being set apart by our salvation to God's purposes, God's desires, aligning our way with his way. We talked about this in chapter 6. And you get sanctification also down in verse 22 of chapter 6. Now you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. Sanctification is not a divide-and-conquer experience. It's a unite-with-Jesus experience. If you take to feeding the white dog, what you may end up feeding is your self-righteousness. And what you may in, end up doing is just enjoying a better kind of lostness. It's just a more moral kind of lostness. Feeding the white dog, coming up with some potion to fix myself like Dr. Jekyll. What this does is it, it leads and lends so quickly to strategies of not just self-improvement, but self-salvation. 
What I'm really doing is trying to be good enough so that God will bless me, so that God will keep me. It's obedience for God's goodness rather than obedience from God's goodness. Here's the reality as Paul gives it to us in Romans 7. I can be just as self-centered in my pursuit of good as in my pursuit of evil. This is how evil we are. I can be just as far from Christ in my goodness as in my badness. And Paul holds himself out here as exhibit A. Remember we talked about it last week, verses 7 and 8. He looked at the law of God and he felt pretty good about himself in relation to it because externally he was the, the you know, primary guy. As Jews went, there was none better than Paul. But the law also gets inside the heart. Remember we talked about this last week? It's the loud sins versus the quiet sins. Verse 7, he said, uh, end of verse 7, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, you shall not covet is the tenth of the Ten Commandments, actually. Seizing opportunity through the commandment, verse 8, produced in me all kinds of covetousness from, apart from the law. Sin lies dead. Coveting happens way up in the heart. Remember we said last week, you know, nobody has to tell you you're in adultery. You know, oh, you're not my spouse. But coveting, coveting goes on up in the inner recesses. It's the wasp's nest that, okay, it's still there in my uh, entryway. I did, not, I did not get rid of it yet. They're still swarming around up there. What's the point of that commandment? You look at the Ten Commandments. Just take those as, as the, uh, the moral essence. And you look at the last one, do not covet. What's the point of that? The point of that is love God so much that you're content with what you have. And we all say, amen, that's good. And Paul knew that was good as well. But he also knew he didn't love God like that. Because he realized all kinds of covetousness are going. Some of it's... Uh, he can recognize and account for it, and some of it he can't. He was covetous. It was hidden up in his heart. By the way, Robert Louis Stevenson naming Mr. Hyde, that is brilliant on this line. Hyde, H-Y-D-E, the old English word from which we get hidden. It's our quiet sins that can be the most deadly even when we think we have our loud sins in check, the quieter ones can rage. The law served the dual purpose of checking loud sins, but also shining a light up into the inner recesses of the heart where the quiet sins are, are nesting. And this is why Paul is careful. Once again, notice verse 7, notice in verse 12, notice in verse 13. He is careful to affirm the goodness of the law, the Mosaic law he's talking about. The law re represents God's revealed will. But when we feel the weight of our sin, when we recognize the law names, you know, it outs me, I'm a sinner. When we recognize that and we try to deal with it by doing right, being good, showing God we can fix ourselves and do better, Paul says here in, in Romans chapter 7, don't be surprised to find unrighteousness and self-righteousness is all the more stirred up in you when you're trying to do the right thing. 
And how come that is? Because we are more evil than we know. But this is what makes the gospel great, isn't it? Because in the gospel, we're told God knows all this about us already, and yet is still for us. And chapter 8 will make this explicit. Since we're actually more evil than we know, none of us will make ourselves better. Now, I'm not saying that we cannot improve. I'm not saying you cannot course correct, you can't overcome bad habits and such. You, you read this book and it helps you and you, you put this person's uh, system into effect and it, and it helps you and you see results. Yes, uh, all of that is, is good and fine. It, it works to a degree. But to unite ourselves to Jesus is to be made new. And there's a better that comes from being made new that anticipates that as good as I, as I might get in this life, as, as much applause as people may give me for, for thinking I'm superlatively gifted or uh, energetic or successful, glorification is going to be my, my ultimate betterness. I, I need the person I need to take over me is Jesus, not, not so much a better me. We put grace to work through trustful obedience, motivated by love. We've talked about this. We'll come to this in chapter 12, the application part of Romans. But obedience to God in Christ, it comes from a a completely different uh, motivational structure. Obedience from the heart, chapter 6, verse 17. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, chapter 7, verse 6. Not in the old way of the written code. What was the old way of the written code? Obey me and I will bless you. What's the new way of the Spirit? You've been blessed by Christ, now obey. In fact, just a preview uh, next week, look down in verse 2 of chapter 8, where he will call the law of the Spirit of life. In other words, the expectation for obedience hasn't gone away, but the motivation to obey in Christ is completely different than it was under Moses. The fact that you're more evil than you know yourself to be does not mean you cannot obey God. It means your heart takes what God gives, not just the law of God, but even the grace of God, and, uh, and, and works this to my own advantage. It means the, the moral code uh, is powerless to change me. He says, he says as much in verse 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Verse 18, I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. I can't do this by myself. I, I can't generate from myself everything I need. I can't even do it from the law, even though it's from God. What must happen? God must take residence of me and in me, and renovate me from the inside out, and reshape, that is, we've been using the operative word, cruciform, my desires. Last week, our, our takeaway was, when being good isn't good enough, don't despair. We talked about that last week, and I told you we would come back this week to this, and we would talk about desire. When being good isn't good enough, don't despair. When being good isn't good enough, don't extinguish your desires. Don't don't conclude that your desires are the problem. 
The problem is in our desires, but it's not our desires themselves. In grappling with sin and its corruption of everything, just again, just about everything that is evil is a good thing corrupted. That's how evil works. It's a parasite on good. It hijacks goodness and gets from it for itself what it, what it corrupts and, and becomes. In grappling with sin, we come to think our desires are the problem. The, desi- the problem is that I have, I have these desires. And I'll just, what I'll do is I'll just make myself not want that, whatever that is. You can fill in your own blanks. I'll just make myself not want that. I had a friend years back, uh, another place we lived, he made a very good income. And uh, he liked driving nice cars. And he could easily afford them. Uh, he liked making car deals as well. It wasn't just driving a car. He'd drive a car for about 18 months, and, and he, would, he would switch it out. And he, lo- he, he was the, the art of the deal. He just, he just knew how to go in and, and get something that really nice for himself. But somewhere uh, it, it happened that he got convicted about this. I don't know what kind of teaching he heard, but he, he, he began to believe that a, a nice car meant too much to him, uh, that, uh, that this... Uh, uh, art uh, of making deals was he was too fond of it and so he traded his nice car in on a beater car I still remember this it was almost like car purgatory for him you know it's like a like a car penance completely self-generated but guess what he wanted his nice car back all the more <laughs> driving the beater car around. You know what he learned? He could not, by driving the beater car, he could not make himself not want a nice car. He couldn't do it. But he got the beater car because he thought that's what would happen. I'll get the beater car, and, 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 I'll, and I'll make myself content with this, and every nice car that he could have that passes him on the road is like, what am I doing? We try to extinguish our desires, extinguish them. And we think that's the problem. It took me years to realize desire itself is not the problem. I, I was a backwoods Baptist growing up, but I was a backwoods Buddhist uh, at the same time on this particular point. Because if you understand Buddhism, Buddhism puts all the problem on desire. And Buddhism is popular culturally because people uh, a lot of the self-help stuff that sells very well it's it's really geared at you know your desires are the problem you've got bad desires straight out of buddhism and so you've got to you've got to extinguish your desires and and you're working against the grain when you do that of how god made you what paul means by flesh in verse 18 when he says i know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh he's talking about the corruption of my desires the corruption that's in my desires. It's, it's not that, that being uh, a person is, is bad. People are made in the image and likeness of God. I've, I've often said to you the contrast between worldly and earthly. Earthly is good. Jesus became a man. If that was a sinful thing to inhabit human flesh, then we've got a problem. But it wasn't a sinful thing to inhabit human flesh. When he says flesh, he means the corruption in my desires. We don't have two natures, you know, half bad and half good. And 
what we have is one human nature. You have one human nature and it's fallen and thereby my desires are susceptible to corruptions of all kinds because I'm fallen. What do you say in verse 8? Covetousness of all kinds. But God wove desire into our nature. It's, it's human to desire. I'll even quote the kings of Leon. I know it's not a band everybody in here knows. A man's not a man unless he has desire. That's true. Literally. Desire is hardwired into us by God. And that sin invades our flesh means corruption invades our desires. And the answer to that is not to act like I don't really want what I don't think I want anymore, but actually I do. You just, you just put yourself in a pretzel with that. Sanctification is not divide and conquer myself. As if I'm equally as good as I am evil and I will simply play to the good in me. Sanctification is I am evil. And my only hope for growth and freedom that lasts and that will eventually be perfected is to unite myself to Christ and trust and obey him in love. Align my purposes to his Seek his character to conform and shape mine. Stay in his truth. Abide in his grace. He's the better person I need taking over my life. When being good isn't good enough, don't, don't extinguish your desires. And we do this one of two ways, either by strategies of self-improvement or by strategies of self-denial. We've already Talked about the self-improvement side. Dr. Jekyll with his potion. I'll just, you know, I'll go to chemistry and, and, and separate the evil self from the good self. The good guy I actually consider myself to be and I'll, and I'll be fine. The old Indian chief trying to feed the white dog. This is a self-improvement strategy. I'll just give myself to what I know is better, to what I know is truer, to what I know is nobler, and I'll win. I won't desire sin anymore. But strategies of self-improvement only go so far. It's not that they're bad. And I, I heard from folks this week, you know, gosh, I feel horrible now. I've canceled people with the old Indian story. Don't feel horrible for that, okay? Don't feel horrible for that. Uh, it, it's adequate as a description of what's going on. It's just the prescription in that what we often end up feeding is self-righteousness. When being good isn't good enough, don't extinguish your desires. They're not the problem themselves. We do this either by strategies of self-improvement or strategies of self-denial. The strategies of self-denial, you've got to be careful with this because these can lead us into self-loathing. Uh, you know, we loathe ourselves for desiring certain things. We loathe ourselves because we... You know, we want uh, pleasures too much or we want comforts too much or we want certain kind of foods, rich foods too much or whatever it is. And we loathe ourselves for having these desires. But these don't need extinguishing, trying to deny we have them. They need cruciforming. They need reshaping discipline around, around something other than me and my satisfaction and everything in the center of, 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 of everything. 
without this cruciforming, what will happen is I will keep going to sin. Whatever my sin is, I will keep looking in sin for something for myself instead of locating that in my Savior. That, or I try to save myself by making myself better. Self-denial in the interest of self-discipline can be really good and needful, which is why I say we need to be careful with the way we come at this, self-denial. But in this series, we're hearing why we need our loves and our longings, our desires, our expectations of life to be cruciformed, to be shaped by the cross. And if you're hearing me and you're just going, yeah, but I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, keep going back to Jesus. You know what you need to see it as? Well, I'm just the most terrible sinner in the world. Then you have all the more opportunity to get to know Jesus and to understand his grace. The gracious self-sacrifice that happened on the cross forms us. And Jesus invites us into this. I mean, we're very good at emphasizing the substitution aspect of the cross. He went there in our place. But there's also the invitation of Jesus to join him there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's great line, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Why? Because we're set free to Christ, not negative freedom, but positive freedom, to own his ownership of us. But in chapter 7, Paul says, there's a tension in this. Even though we're no longer enslaved to sin, we still struggle with its straw from within ourselves, but also from outside ourselves. When we get to chapter 8, we'll find we have this struggle all the way into glorification whenever that comes. When we're in the presence of Jesus and we're made new, or our newness is, is, is fully and finally there. And, and that's something that shapes our, our longings now. But for now, we don't solve the struggle. We don't relieve the tension by denying we have desires. I'll just make myself not want that, whatever that is. When being good isn't good enough, don't extinguish your desires because you end up working against the grain of how God made us. What Scripture says is not to rid ourselves of desires, but to cruciform them. Romans 13, verse 14, when we come to it eventually, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, that is to gratify the corruption that's there. And God is for us in this. Paul will say so explicitly in chapter 8. And because God is for us in this, not against us, he doesn't toss us away from himself because we struggle. He ministers to us from what has been, that is Christ has made our redemption possible, redeemed us from death as the penalty of sin, and he ministers to us from what will be. Our present struggles and sin grow our anticipation and longing for full-on freedom in his presence. But you know, some of us can despair enough, some of us can struggle enough, depending on the intensity of our struggle, to even consider, well, I want glorification to begin now, so why not, why not kill myself? If Christian hope is true, and if I'm struggling deeply here, then why not just go ahead and enter glorification? That's what Dr. Jekyll did in the park when he realized he became Mr. Hyde. Really, he was Mr. Hyde all along, but he became Mr. Hyde without the potion. He kills himself. I want to say here at the end of this message that if that's your temptation or your consideration at times, and I recognize in a room this size there will be those who think about this, I say to you in love, 
Don't ever read verse 24 in the Bible without verse 25. You've heard sermons, and sadly you heard some from me early on in my preaching career here, where you got verse 24 without verse 25. You got wretched man that I am, but you didn't hear, thanks be to God. Wretched man that I am, what am I to do about this condition that I'm in? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does that say to you? It says to you that because God is for you, this is why you never despair over yourself to the place of self-loathing. God is not intimidated by your Mr. Hyde. He's loved him, her, you. (laughs) From before the foundation of the earth was set, don't despair. God is for you even if you're struggling hard today and you wonder why you even came in this room. You've got to believe that God is for you. The line in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's never answered by taking matters into my own hands, either through strategies of self-improvement or strategies of uh, self-denial, of which suicide is the ultimate self-denial, is it not? The wretched man that I am is answered by Jesus himself. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 25. Just say something of a point to you on this, since I've mentioned it. The longing for glorification is never answered by suicide. Our call is never to snuff out our own lives in order to finally breathe heaven's free air. I've known people who've despaired so hard that that's become a temptation. I just can't best this, and I feel such guilt and shame for it, and that becomes the solution. We never seek the unfiltered goodness of God by destroying the goodness of God in us, which is His image and His likeness that He's placed in us, which gives dignity to all people. Despair could take us there, despairing of ourselves. Chronic self-denial could take us there. God brought us here and He keeps us here in order to keep sharing His love and His happiness with you, even if you're not happy today and you don't feel loved. I was uh, listening to a a scholar uh, this week on a thing I listened to, and and he said, you know, we've taken the creation account, and we've made it so factual because we have to answer uh, the Darwinists. And so creation has become this list of things that happen, all these facts. And he said, we never get to the why. Why did he do it? My son and I were sitting in the Young Avenue Deli yesterday having our lunch right? And we go through the New City Catechism. He has drum lessons in the area down the street, and so occasionally we go have lunch there. And, and he asked a great question as we were talking about the theology part. He said, why did God make all this when he knew it'd go wrong? It's a fantastic question. I'm so glad you asked that. And what came to mind is, and it's, it, this is lesser to greater, is I said, you know, son, why, why do I give you a room? Why did I give you the biggest room in our house? And he thought about it. And I said, you know, it's because I love you, right? And he goes, yeah, you love me. And I said, but you mess that room up, don't you? That room is a mess half the time. And mom and I are aggravated with you half the time. It's not picked up. But we haven't taken the room from you, have we? 
because having the room in my house comes with having the relationship with me as my son, my dearly loved son. And, and I would no longer, I would no more deny you that than I would deny my, myself uh, food and clothing and taking care of me. And he understood the point. God created and he recreates the new creation. Behold, I make all things new. You know what that is? That's when we get to share in his happiness then without the film of sin on everything. It's a marvelous thing to consider. He knows our struggle is real. He, he knew it when he saved us. It didn't turn him away knowing that people would go wrong because he created us in order to share with us his goodness. The creation is an act of grace. It's all an act of grace with him. And Paul speaks to all this in Romans 7. The struggle is real, but so is the Savior. (laughs) Don't miss the Savior for the struggle. And he'll be around far longer than our sin will be, and his reach is far greater than your sin. And he will make all things new. Though you do not see him now, the Scripture says you love him. And the reason you love him is because you know he's good. And even if you're struggling today, you know he's good. And that the love he gives, he does not take back. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. And then we'll sing and we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Lord, for your gifts and your call that are irrevocable. Thank you for how you have shown us grace in this passage. Thank you for how this passage speaks to us, of us, about us. We see our sin, Lord, but we need to see the Savior as well. And thank you for how chapter 8, Paul brings us around to everything that's tucked into thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 8 is glorious in its rehearsing for us how good the love of God is for people who don't merit it, but that's the point. And when we see that point, our gratitude grows, our praise grows, our declaration of your goodness grows, and we're grateful for this. In Christ's name. Amen.